Well, when I was growing up, there was a Sunday morning where my family of eight loaded into our old station wagon and we headed out toward Mass at the Catholic Church we were attending at the time. And when the service was over, we were going back home and we stopped at the grocery store to buy the things that were needed for the week. And uh, when we were done shopping, we packed all the bags and people in the car and uh, arriving at home, my mom began to make sandwiches. And as we uh, were gathering in the kitchen, she laid out eight sandwiches across the counter and everybody grabbed one. And while everyone was eating, she noticed there's still a sandwich sitting there. And uh, she did a quick census of the kids. She counted among the six of us, and she said, where's Francis, one of my brothers? And uh, we all, I don't know, she said, we'll find him. So we started calling for him. We searched the house. We checked the yard. And uh, about that moment, as panic was setting in, we realized the last time anybody had seen him was back at the grocery store. So my mom said, uh, everybody in the car and uh, all eight of us, seven of us at this point loaded up, sped back to the grocery store. And as our little herd comes through the door, there was one of those raised offices to the right. And we see the manager sitting there with my brother uh, crying. And uh, Francis sees us come in the door and he stands up and he goes, why did you leave me? Has anybody ever had that happen? <laughs> Has anybody ever had that moment of panic when you realize somebody's missing? You kind of spin around, right? And you look, and you don't see them, and and immediately your stomach drops. Your heart begins to race, and you start calling their name. And as you're searching and you don't find them, you become a little more frantic. You start darting around in the crowd. You start raising your voice, yelling their name. About this moment, the prayer kicks in, right? Lord, please, please help me find my son. Help me find my daughter. And God, please, would they be okay? Would you keep them safe? So we're going to turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 2. What we're going to find is a time where Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. How would you like to pray that prayer? Um, God... I think we lost your son. <laughs> is he really the only begotten son, or do you have another one? I mean, you know, what, what, what prayer is going on at the moment? Well, look with me at Luke chapter 2 as we see what happened beginning in verse 39. It says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong. Increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? 
But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in the favor and in favor with God and men. Now, in these 18 verses, we find the entire biblical record of the boyhood of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but if you were to lay all four Gospels side by side and look at them, what you would find is that that Mark and John go right to the baptism of Jesus. John starts out by telling us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then, after he establishes who he is, he goes right to the baptism of Jesus. And as we're going to see when we get to Luke 3.23, that baptism happens when Jesus is about 30 years old. So 18 more years will pass from what we're reading about right here. Matthew's gospel also begins or covers uh, the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3. There are some things mentioned before, like right before it in Matthew 2, 13 through 21. There we find the account where God sent the angel to tell Joseph, take the, the boy Jesus, this young uh, boy. Less, you know, He would have been less than two years old, you'll recall, because the reason God wanted him removed and sent to Egypt was because Herod was beginning his murderous rampage to kill all the boys two years and under, because that was about the time the Magi said we saw his star. And so as we look at verse 39 here in Luke chapter 2, the details aren't spelled out of that trip to Egypt, but they're included because it says Joseph and Mary went back to their hometown of Nazareth. And if you look at Matthew 2.23, it says, And Jesus came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what which was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. As we're looking at the gospel of Luke, I want you to remember what the word gospel means. Gospel is literally the good news. And the four gospels are designed to point us to the good news of what God did when he sent his son Jesus, the promised Messiah, that baby of Bethlehem that we've seen became the Christ of Calvary. Jesus took on flesh and blood so he could go to the cross to pay the penalty of death we owed for our sins. That is what the Gospels are about. They are not biographies. People sometimes mistakenly think these are biographies, and and we try to read them that way, but they're apologetics. They're books that point us to the truth of who Jesus is. Remember that as Luke wrote this Gospel, we saw in Luke 1, 1 through 4, it was written to a Roman official. He said, so that you can know the truth of what you've been taught. And so as you look at the four different Gospels, as we talked about in a previous sermon, we saw that they are written to four different audiences with a primary focus. Luke's is to a Gentile audience. It's an apologetic for the Roman mind, this Roman official that that he's addressing it to in the Gentile audience. And one of the main points that Luke has established early in this Gospel has been the, the full deity of Jesus as well as the full manhood of Jesus. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is what Luke is bringing us back to here. In Colossians 2.9, we're told, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And here we see the fullness of the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was born flesh and blood as a baby. And now Luke wants everybody to know he grew and developed as a normal human being. He was a baby, and then he was a boy before he is that man of 30 beginning his public ministry. 
And as Luke is telling us these things, I want you to remember what was his profession. Luke was a physician. He's a doctor. And we've already seen in the way he approaches it as he reports it. Here we see uh, Dr. Luke writing out this information like a pediatrician would to a parent. Many of you have had those uh, times where you take your child for their yearly checkup and then the doctor comes in and, and they say to you, well, your son or daughter is developing well and they pull out the growth charts and they say, you know, your, your, your child is here in the 70th or 80th or 90th percentile. Here Dr. Luke tells us Jesus is off the charts. He says he's growing physically. He's developing well. He's growing intellectually. He, he's got a good balance of emotion. He's, he's socially adapted. He's hitting all of the milestones. And as he tells us these things, we're no longer dealing with a little baby. But verse 42 says he is 12 years old. I have a 12-year-old son right now. And as I was meditating on this passage over the last couple of weeks, I would look at Zachary, my 12-year-old, sitting at the table. And I think, this is Jesus, not Zachary in particular, but this, this is the Jesus I'm studying right now. And there's my son plowing through a whole plate of food. And then five minutes later, going, Dad, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm going, you ate as much as I did. I'm hungry, Dad. Okay, go eat. This is Jesus. He's growing. He's developing. He's a boy. But as we read this, friends, he's not a missing middle schooler. Zachary's, you know, in middle school. And, and we read this in, in, in our day and we go, well, he's this 12-year-old middle schooler kind of in that awkward developmental age. But I want you to remember, we're reading a, a book about a first century Jewish boy. Have you ever heard of something called a bar mitzvah? A bar mitzvah literally means son of the law. Girls have a bat mitzvah, a daughter of the law. And this is the, the crossing over ceremony from uh, being a child or an adolescent to being recognized as an adult in Jewish society. Jesus is 12. He's going into his adulthood. He's going to have uh, that crossing over time where he is welcomed in as a full member of the synagogue, uh, an, a grown man in Jewish society. This is why as we're reading this, and, and you may be thinking, well, what bad parents would leave their kid in Jerusalem? Friends, Jesus isn't a little kid where Mary and Joseph have to hold his hand and say, come along, son. We've read that he's been going year after year after year with the family. They've been teaching and modeling. He knows the drill. He's made the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem many times. Next year, he's going to be an adult man. Mary and Joseph, when they first had Jesus, they were teenagers, barely older than Jesus is at this moment. He's a fully functioning adult in this society. And, and so they're not worried about where he is when they say the feast is over and we're headed home. We're, we read there's a caravan. And, and verse 44 tells us it's made up of friends and families members. There were three feasts a year where, where Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem. One of them was Passover, which we're reading about. And, and so you would, you would make this trip, and it wasn't just you solo. It was pretty much all of the adult-aged men in town. Anybody who was capable of traveling was required to go. And as you went to the feast, sometimes you took your whole family. And we see, we've seen Joseph and Mary are God-fearing, uh, law-keeping Jews. And so they went as a family to worship. 
And Mary and Joseph at this point probably had the other children. They're not mentioned in the text, but the the scripture is clear that after the virgin birth, Joseph and Mary as husband and wife had other children. There's James, a half-brother. Later in Luke, we're going to read about his brothers and sisters coming. And so the whole family would have made this trip up to Jerusalem. And, And they're among neighbors and others. You traveled for fellowship and protection as a group. Half the town would have been there. And so it's kind of like the bus is leaving, everybody gets on it, they're headed back. But in that day, they walked. And so as they're leaving in this caravan to go back, in Jewish society, women would be near the front, and they're all gathered together walking and talking. This was a multi-day trip. The men would have been in the back. And so Mary just assumes, well, Jesus is pretty much a man. He's, He's back with the guys. Joseph is in the back with the guys, and he thinks, well, maybe this is Jesus' last trip home uh, before he's back here as an adult man, so he's, he's up front with his mother. And, and they're walking and talking, and they're going along, and, and, and nobody's missing Jesus. It says in verse 43, they were returning after spending the full number of days. You, you see, it's plural. The feast of Passover would have been a one-day event, but right after it was a seven-day feast called Unleavened Bread. And many who had made that multi-day journey to Jerusalem stayed And they celebrated the feast in totality, the second one with it. And so they've been there. They've been there uh, around eight days in Jerusalem. They've had the the three days of travel to get from Nazareth to to Jerusalem. And now they're making that three-day journey back. And as they're going, I want you to put yourself in the caravan for a moment. I know oftentimes we kind of read the Bible and it's real familiar and we're skipping over pages. I want you to linger in the text. I want you to imagine You're in this group of people. You're on a dusty road. You're traveling back. You're with friends and family. You're catching up on life and each other, uh, what's been going on in each other's families. And and as you're traveling, remember where you're coming from, Jerusalem, the big city where the temple is. You've been there celebrating the feasts. You've been in the temple You've been worshiping. You've seen the sacrifices. You've seen the ceremonies. You've, you've been celebrating the Passover, God's great story of redemption when he set Israel free from Egyptian bondage. And as you're traveling home, you're excited. You're talking about all you've seen. You're, you're from a little town, Nazareth. So uh, I imagine as you were walking the streets of Jerusalem and you saw the, the, the shops there, you're like, wow, look at, look at all the stuff that's available. And, and, and maybe they're talking about the things they saw in the stores. There, people are traveling from all over the region, so there would have been different uh, dialects, different dress styles, and they're going, can you believe what the people from so-and-so were wearing? And, oh, did you see? And so everybody's talking about these things. And, and they're talking about the services, the, the worship and the things that have happened. And they're going, you know, I think that was Rabbi Rogers' best sermon ever, Right? <laughs> And, and others are going, you know, it's the same thing, Passover after Passover. He says the same things, you know. And, and, and people are going, the worship was wonderful. And somebody's going, yeah, we didn't sing any of the songs I like, you know. Kind of like what happens in the car going home from here, right? And I, I, I'm sure politics came up. How could you miss it? I mean, this is Roman oppression. The soldiers are in the street. Rome was on their their highest level of alert as the Jews were gathering and celebrating redemption and freedom from the the foreign oppressors. Rome was ready for, you know, something to break out. And, And so they're all talking about the Romans in the streets and the oppression and saying, oh, when will God set us free? 
like he did our forefathers from the Egyptians, that time of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And while all this is going on, I'm sure some people's minds started to shift gears. You're now a day closer to home. You've been away almost two weeks. Imagine the work that's been piling up. And so you're starting to think about what's waiting for you at home. And the text doesn't tell us, so it's speculation. But maybe as Joseph is walking back, he's remembering, you know, he's a carpenter. He's remembering that project he's, he needs to do, that, that table he needs to build. And he's saying, I've got that big log in my workshop, and I need Jesus to help me move it. And, and maybe Mary is, is thinking about the, the load of laundry she has to do, and she's saying, where's Jesus? Did he, I need to see, did he rip his robe? Is it really dirty? What, what do we need to do? We're not told what happens, but suddenly they start to think about, where's Jesus? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been going along in life, just kind of carried along by the crowd? You're thinking about everything and anything going on in life, and suddenly you think, I haven't thought about Jesus in a while. Has that ever happened to you? You're saying, well, Roger, I'm here at church today. I'm thinking about him now. That's wonderful. But are, are you already shifting gears? Is somebody making a shopping list sitting out there in the pew? What do I need to get after I go to the church picnic on the way home? Roger mentioned that grocery store, and I need to go to the grocery store, right? Your, your mind has already gone there. How many times do we leave Jesus here at church? Do we carve out time for him on Sunday, but then when we walk out the door, we leave him here at church? You know, in Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus tells us, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. But how often do we leave or forsake him? You know, sometimes it's because we just go on autopilot. We have our relationship with him and things are okay. No crises in our life. We don't really, you know, need to pray one of those prayers, God help me. And so we, we just kind of forget about God for a while. Other times we purposely push him aside, right? We've got something going on in our life, some area of sin that we're, we're playing with. And we, we know that it's, it, it, it's not good and we don't want God in it. So we just kind of segregate him over there and we, we leave him off to the side, Whatever the reason is that we forget about Jesus, in those moments where we realize we've lost our, our walk with him, we, we haven't been in fellowship, we haven't really thought about him in a while, we need to do what Mary and Joseph do. When they realize he is missing, what do they do? They immediately stop. And they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem. Maybe they said to their friends and relatives and neighbors, hey, would you take the other kids, take them home? We've got to go back and find Jesus. And, and they, they do what we talked about last week. Remember the word repentance literally means when you realize you're going the wrong direction, you, you stop and you turn around and you go back. And so as they recognize we've, we've left Jesus behind, they stop, they turn around, and they go back to Jerusalem. As we look at verses 45 and 46, it, it, it says they were looking for three days before they found him. Now, the text can be read two different ways. It can be that you say, well, they traveled a day from Jerusalem, so that's one. And now they're searching the road as they go back, that's two. And then they get to the city, and they spend an entire day scouring the streets, and that's three. Or it could be it's even more than that. Regardless, imagine as a parent, you haven't seen your 12-year-old son 
for three full days and two nights. Is there any terror? Is there any anxiety? Are you worried about where is he? Is he safe? As you're searching the streets, as, as they're looking all throughout the big city of Jerusalem, they finally find him. Verses 46 through 49 tell us. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Now, as Jesus says this, he's not being a smart aleck. He's not talking back to his mother. I want you to look at verse 51 because there it says, He continued in subjection to them. Continued. He's always been under their authority. This is the Son of God. And yet he is the Son of Mary and the stepson of Joseph. And he's placed himself under the authority. He is the perfect Son of God. I mean, imagine being the brothers and sisters. How would you like to live up to that? You know, we have these WWJD, what would Jesus do? That, they were hearing it all the time. Why can't you be like your brother Jesus? <laughs> well, because he's God, Mom, and we're not. <laughs> but as you read the Gospels, you see they would mock him. They didn't believe he was God early in life. They just hated him as the golden boy. Well, as God who wrote the commandments, one of them which is honor your father and mother, he fulfilled it. Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect son of God. He wasn't talking back to his mother and father. As you look at how he answers Mary, what he does is he takes her words and notice how he turns them to help her see who he is. Mary said, your father and I were worried. And Jesus takes the word father and he applies it to the God of the temple where he is. And he says, mom, I'm in my father's house. Where else do you think I would be? He says in verse 49, I had to be here. When he says I had to be here, it's the Greek infinitive day, D-E-I, as you see up here on the text. And this word means to be under necessity of happening. Uh, An easier way to understand it is irresistible compulsion. He says I had to be here. Luke is going to use this word throughout his gospel to show this inner compulsion of of God's leading for Jesus to fulfill his destiny as the divine son of God, to do the will of his father. I'm about to show you a number of verses, and, and don't get lost in them. Just look at what is being said. And what I'm showing you isn't even an exhaustive list of what Luke says. But this word day, this this irresistible compulsion as Jesus fulfills his destiny is found. Luke 4.43 says, But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. He says in Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
Luke 13, 33, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. You're seeing what Jesus knows about the plans and purposes of God and who he is. He says in Luke 17, 25, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke twenty two thirty seven. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus, as he was crucified, had the two thieves on either side of him dying. Read the Messiah passage in Isaiah chapter 53, the Jewish prophecy that said he will be with those in his death and he will be buried with a rich man. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You see all the fulfillment of the scriptures in Jesus. Luke 24, 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Luke 24, 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke 24, 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Jesus understood who he was and what was happening, what his purposes are. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we're told that although Jesus existed in the form of God, Jesus emptied himself, willingly giving up the exercise of his divine attributes. But as he did so, he never ceased to be God. Now, I will tell you, um, this is one of those mysteries, those theological mysteries. I've preached on Philippians 2 in the past. We could spend weeks trying to unravel this mystery of how God was fully God and was also fully man, and how do the two come together. There are much better theological minds than mine that have wrestled with this question for centuries. And as we look at the things here, one of the areas of mystery surrounding the Godhead is the omniscience of God. Omniscience is that big word that means God knows everything. So, so how does that work when we read in Luke 2, 40 and 52 that Jesus was filled with wisdom and yet he was increasing in wisdom? You see, he was a baby who had to learn to walk and talk and do things. And, and, and he had an understanding of things. But at what point did he fully grasp who he was? I don't know. But I know as we read this passage at the age of 12, he had a full understanding of who he was and what he was doing. He said, I had to be in the house of God, my father. And the way the Greek text reads is it says, I had to be about my father's business. He knew that God had a plan and a purpose for him. And as Jesus is there among the religious leaders, they see this 12-year-old kid and it says they are amazed. In modern terms, he would say their minds are blown. The Greek word used here literally means to be beside themselves in amazement. Now, if their minds are blown at that point, they're going to blow a gasket a little later in the book of Luke. 
Because you remember there was a point where Jesus on scrolls, uh, the, the, he's in the synagogue and he's reading and he's, he's, he's talking about the Messiah and he says, this day has been fulfilled. And it says they take up stones to stone him. He goes, Why are you, for what good work are you doing these things? In the Gospels it tells us how they were always trying to kill Jesus. And he, they said, not for any good works, but because you being a man claim to be the son of God. And Luke says he was a man and he was and is the son of God. And this is what Luke is writing this gospel for to help us see the Godhead, the the God-man Jesus Christ and who he is. Now, there were those who rejected Christ and, and, and they went from being his fans to fanatically trying to kill him, but there were others who came to faith in Christ. You can keep reading through the gospels and you see where Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, came to Christ in the middle of the night and wanted to know about being born again. Uh, there, there are those like Joseph of Arimathea whose tomb he was buried in. He was a rich man. He would have been part of the Jewish elite, the Sanhedrin type of council. All, many of the, remember the whole early church was made up of Jews. Many of the scribes, Pharisees, leaders of the day. Paul, a Pharisee later who tried to wipe out the church, became a believer and was used by God to write much of the New Testament. These people came to understand who he was. Many of the Jewish leaders in that day came to a moment. And I wonder, when they came to faith, how many of them stopped and said, do you remember when we were back in the temple, that one Passover? And and there was that, that little boy, Yeshua, Jesus. And we were amazed. Why did we not see it then? Can you remember the time in your own life when you came to faith in Jesus? Can you remember that moment where the light went on and you said, I believe he's who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is the one who went to the cross and died for me. He is my savior who took my place and paid that penalty of death. Can you remember that moment? If you can't, it's okay. Some came to faith at a very early age and you're going, I don't know, I just feel like I've always known Jesus. But there are others who are sitting here today. There are others who are listening to this message um, at Stone Oak or will be on the internet later and are saying, you know, Roger, to be honest, I don't know that I've ever really come to that point where I, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. And if that's you this morning, I want to say something to you. I am so glad you were here. I'm so glad you were listening to this sermon. I'm so glad you were seeking to know, is Jesus really who he says he is? Because what God tells us in Matthew 7, 7 is, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. I'm glad you're looking. And I'm glad you're here looking for answers. I'll be at the front after the service. There are people in the Welcome Center. There are prayer leaders at the front. There are friends that maybe brought you to church today. Ask them your questions. We would love to help you find the answers. But as you're looking for the answers of who is Jesus and is he the Son of God, make sure you're looking in the right place. Remember, Mary and Joseph were searching all over for him, and when they went to the right place, the house of God, that's when they found him. And what you need to do is go to the Bible. Begin there. Because that is God's word. That is God's word that points you to who God's son is. 
And if you're here this morning, you say, I don't own a Bible. We do not want you to leave church today without one. We will give you one as a gift. Please go to our Welcome Center. We will give you a Bible as a gift. Go to God's Word and ask Him, God, if you're really uh, who you say you are, Jesus, you are the Son of God, then show that to me. Holy Spirit, who wrote the Scriptures through the hands of men, would you reveal the truth to me? Now, there's an element of faith. There's a point where you'll get to a point where you're saying, there's, there's, there may be something I still don't see or understand, and that's called faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. None of us saw Jesus crucified on a cross. None of us saw him buried in the tomb and, and three days later come out from the grave alive, but we have the eyewitness testimony. Luke interviewed the eyewitnesses of the day, and he's recorded the evidence for us. I'm not asking you to have a blind faith to go from here with no information to here in faith. But think about all the things you believe in life that you have less evidence for than the claims of Jesus Christ. There is more evidence for the historical man, Jesus Christ. There is more written. Luke said in the beginning, many things have been written about him in his day. And you have more evidence if you are going to be intellectually honest about who Jesus is and the truth of who he is than you have for many of the other things you believe. So as you're asking your questions, look in God's word. Ask God to reveal himself. If we're being honest, the reason some of us have not come to faith in Christ is because we love our sin more than we love our Savior. I have people all the time that I talk to when I say, what is keeping you from coming to faith in Christ at this very moment as I've answered questions they've had? And I've had people... Again, I appreciate their honesty. They tell me point blank, well, I know if I become a Christian, it means I have to change some things in my life. And I'm not ready to do that. They say, well, there's a day coming where I'll do that. And I tell them, you're playing a very dangerous game because you don't know the day that your life will end. And if you think you can run right up to the end and then cross over, um, you're not in control of those things. And it may be that you're here this morning, you're saying, I just like my life too much. I don't want to turn from my sins into Jesus as my Savior. Now, as I say that, I want to make something very clear. I'm not telling you to be religious. I'm not telling you to be good enough to get to God. I'm not telling you to come to church enough Sundays where you can check off the box a number of times. That's not how you get to God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says very clearly, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. God is not telling us we get to him by being good enough. What he's telling us is we get to him through what his son Jesus did for us. He came and he provided that bridge, the cross that was laid across the chasm of sin that separated us from, from him. He says in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus died and paid that penalty of death that I owe and you owe. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible tells us we get home to heaven by what Jesus did. He came to earth as the baby of Bethlehem to be the Christ of Calvary. And as we're reading about this today, that's what Jesus did for us. And I want you to have that great gift of new life. There is nothing more precious or valuable or eternal than that. I said earlier that sometimes we don't want to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. 
because we love our sin more than our Savior. And as we look at Mary wrestling with what's happening here, again, the text isn't abundantly clear on this, but let me just share with you what I think is happening. I think there are two things with Mary that are, that are causing this struggle. We, keep, we read over and over in the, the Gospels about how Mary heard something, and what does it say? She treasured these things up in her heart. She knew without a doubt Jesus is the Son of God. She had the angel Gabriel appear to her. Remember that? You're going you're gonna to give birth to the Messiah. She had Ananias, and, I'm sorry, Zacharias and Elizabeth, her uncle and aunt, say, this is what happened in the temple. John the Baptist, the forerunner that was coming as we saw, uh, they said, this, this is the Messiah that you're carrying. There, there were the shepherds who showed up and said, we were in a field and there was this army of angels that showed up and they said, go and see the Savior. There were wise men, those magi who appeared later that presented gifts and said, we have come to worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one born King of the Jews. As she was there in the temple, remember there was Anna, the, the prophetess. There was Simeon, the prophet, who said, let me hold your child. This is the consolation of Israel. This is the Messiah. She, she knows without a doubt he is the Son of God. But what she struggles with is what does that mean to be the Son of God? Do you struggle with that? I do sometimes. And that's because we are finite people with a limited capacity to understand an infinite God. There was a great theological philosopher by the name of Anselm, and he wrote something called the ontological argument, and he said, God is greater than that which can be conceived. So what he's telling you is, as you think your greatest, biggest thoughts of God, what he says is, think bigger, greater thoughts. And when you get those and you get those beyond that, he says, you haven't even scratched the surface. You see, we have this little box of a finite mind, and we're trying to put this infinite God in there, and we can't fully grasp all that it means. And the other problem Mary had is she loved her son so much, she didn't probably want to go to what that really meant. Remember, Simeon, this, this prophet, had said there in Luke, we read the prophecy. Look at it in Luke 2, 34 through 35. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end, that the thoughts from many hearts may now be revealed. Here's Mary walking into the temple. And, and remember, put yourself in her state of mind. She has been searching frantically for three days. She's She's terrified. When I was a, a cop in Dallas, I would have people that had lost a child. And I would find their, their kid, and I would bring them home. And as, as I brought the kid to the door, uh, I'd knock on the door. And, and the parents would come running out, crying, screaming, Oh, you're safe. I'm so, oh, thank God. You're, I'm going to kill you. You know, right? <laughs> there was this, this whipsaw of emotion that went from, I'm so glad you're safe, to... You're going to, and then the kid's like, would you take me, police officer, to jail so I can be safe? This is Mary. She has this terror of a mother, a human mother. Where's my boy been? And there she sees him. And one moment she's like, thank God he's safe. And the next minute is, I'm going to get you, mister. Do you know what you've put your father and I through? We've been searching for three days for you. And she has this mix of emotions. 
Imagine the pride that swells up in her. She's a mom. And, and, and this is her boy. Remember where Jesus is? He's sitting in the, the temple precinct. He would have been in the outer court area where the Sanhedrin and others heard cases and laws. And, and here's Jesus. He's sitting among the PhDs of the day. He's, he's among the seminary professors. He's among the religious elite. And, and he's right in the middle of them. Now he's learning. He's sitting at their feet. Uh, he's, but they're asking questions. He's asking. And it says they are amazed. They're, they're looking at him saying, who is this kid? How, how does he know these things? And, and, and when it says that, that Mary and Joseph are astonished, it's a different Greek word. That word means to be struck out of their senses. She, she has this moment of pride. She goes, wow, that's my son. See, my son, that's, that's, that's Jesus. That's my son. Hey, Joseph, look, there's our boy. You've been teaching him uh, the scriptures. Look, that's our boy. And with the wow comes woe, as in W-O-E. Whoa. Because she's, she heard Simeon's prophecy there in the temple. A sword will pierce your soul. Your son will be appointed for the rise and fall of many. As he sits among these religious leaders of the day, do you remember what we saw in Luke 9.22? The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by who? The elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And be killed and raised up on the third day. Mary's looking with pride one moment. And then she's like, you're going to be the ones who who condemn my son to death. Jesus has just said, mom, I had to be in my father's house. Because I'm about my father's business. And the purpose of him coming was to die for you and me. And verse 50 says, Mary struggled to understand what does this all mean? You know, you and I have the privilege today of knowing what it all means. Because we have the privilege of having the totality of the revealed word of God. We know not only who he was and why he came. We know how he died and how he rose from the dead. And we know why he came and what he's going to do. And so the question for us today is, what have you done with Jesus Christ? What will you do with what you know about who he is? Will you leave today? Will you walk out of the doors of Wayside and leave Jesus at church? God tells us that he wants us to invite Christ into our heart to be our Savior. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And if you're here this morning and you've never welcomed Christ into your heart, asked him to be the savior of your life, inviting him in to be the payment for the penalty of your sins, don't leave Jesus at church today. Do not walk out of this door without coming to an understanding and accepting him as your savior. And for the rest of us who have received Christ, the Messiah, Jesus is our savior. God doesn't want us to leave him here at church either. He wants us to take him with him. He already lives in our heart, but he doesn't want us to hide him away. He wants us to share him with others, our friends, our family, our co-workers, the people we're going to see. 
The picnic we're about to go to is a, is a great opportunity. You can go home and invite a friend or neighbor and bring them over to Morgan's Wonderland. We're going to be there from, from 12 to 5. And, and you, can, you can bring a friend to a, a very non-threatening event and say, hey, let's go to this uh, amusement park type of thing and have fun. And they can be around other believers and see that we're not, we're not weird people. We're just like them. Don't leave Jesus here at church. As you walk out of the door today, before you do, I want you to consider who is Jesus and what will you do with him? Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he came to be the Savior, the Messiah. We thank you, Jesus, that you, knowing the will of your Father, were willing to do it. As you knelt there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, praying for that cup to pass as you face that night of your crucifixion, you said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then you, Jesus, said, not my will, but your will be done. And you willingly went to the cross and you died for us to pay that penalty of death. And we thank you, God, for that great sacrifice. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who doesn't yet know your son, that this would be the day where they turn to you in faith, that they would acknowledge they are a sinner, somebody who's made mistakes, and because of that, they owe a penalty of death, and they would say, Jesus, I accept your death in my place. Thank you for this gift of new life. And Father, for the rest of us who have received you as the Lord of our life, would we not leave you here at church, but would we take you into our schools, our workplaces, and wherever we go, and share the good news of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.